Well, it's great to see you guys here this morning as we are starting in a new series we're calling Static. And it's an important thing for me to talk about as we prepare ourselves for our season of spiritual growth that's coming up here in the fall. And uh, especially because of some of the cultural movements that have been going on as well, to talk about uh, this idea of what we have here in our hands or have here in our laps or under the seats, the Bible. And uh, it, it kind of became apparent to me that we need to have more of this conversation when my wife was teaching a logic class a couple years ago here at Olive Branch. She was uh, upstairs teaching junior hires, 8th and 7th and 8th graders. And when she would teach logic, she just didn't want to teach logic. She wanted to help them become critical thinkers. And so they would begin to engage in the situations that, uh, that were going on in the culture. And she'd ask them questions about uh, different ideas and different things that were going on out there. And one of them that she engaged with was really interesting. Uh, she asked them, so do you, what about men and women? Do you think there are any differences with men and women? And this group of seventh and eighth graders were like, no, we think men and women are exactly the same. You know? And she's like, really? Because do you think men can have babies? They're like, well, we don't mean that. What they meant was an ability. It's like they, they, they're just as capable of doing anything a man can do and, and vice versa. And so she's like, okay, that's cool. Well, let's ask a different question because she was really curious because we'd been talking about it. She says, do you think men are stronger than women or do you think men and women are equal in strength in the sense of physical strength? And the kids are like, they talked about it for a minute and they all voted and they go, oh, we think that men and women are equal in strength. Like men are not stronger than women. And she's like, seriously? I mean, how old are you guys? Oh, you're seventh and eighth graders. And like, well, why? What's going on? Why, why do you think that? They're like, well, we see it in movies all the time, right? And, you know, little five pounds, you know, five foot, six inch girls can beat up a guy. And she's like, that's movies, you guys. In fact, if you look it up physiologically, men who are put in the same stature, in the sense of the same height, in the same athletic condition as a woman of the same height and same athletic condition are 40 to 50% stronger physically than women. It's just a physiological reality. And, and, and we've gotten to a place in our culture where we don't believe this anymore. And it's because of Marvel movies. It's because of looking at these things that happen in a great spy movie where some girl taught Kung Fu or something like that is capable of doing something to a six foot two fully built, you know, bodyguard guy who is capable of just taking the blow and like, what was that? You know, that's kind of how that normally would go. What's interesting about the scenario though, is that Hollywood has done their job then because Hollywood knows their job is to do one thing for you, to help you suspend your your disbelief. So that when you're watching, you know, somebody going to Mars, you're going like, oh, this is like people going to Mars. This is what it'd be really like. We can do this. And the answer in the science is, no, we can't. There's a lot of problems we have to solve before we can even get close to Mars. And so having this picture that we can do this, we suspend our disbelief. No, there is not an island out there with dinosaurs eating people. That's not true. And, but we can get to this place where we actually begin to believe these things. We actually begin to believe that this is capable of actually truly occurring. Now, the reason I bring this up, uh, it's interesting, you guys didn't laugh like first service, which is older than you. Um, it, they, they know that the men and women thing, they were like, yeah, they were like, what's wrong with these people? Um, but for us, we can begin to believe this. And we can begin to enter into a situation that is very crucial because we can begin to believe that if I have to suspend my disbelief with a movie, with entertainment, things like that, a lot of Christians are coming to the conclusion they have to do the same thing with the Bible. That what they're doing is when they're reading the Bible and they're encountering a miracle, they're going like, well, yeah, I mean, I, I trust the Bible, but I, it's like I'm suspending my disbelief. 
It's sort of like, I just don't want to think about it. I just don't want to really deal with it. I'm just enjoying it. It's just something that encourages me, reminds me that God is, is love and, and I want to live that way. And there's a lot of Christians who are abandoning the word of God, backing off of theology because they're beginning to wonder, can I even trust this book? Can I really engage and understand it as what, how I should? And yet at the same time, I believe that everybody in this room, if God showed up to you last night, I mean, and proved that he was God, appeared to you in your room, proved that he was God beyond a reasonable doubt, without a shadow of a doubt, and then told you to do something, you would do it, wouldn't you? I mean, if you, you've, you're honest to yourself, you'd say, yeah, I would try to do it. Now, if it was difficult, you'd be like, I don't know. If you would look crazy, maybe you wouldn't. But the bottom line is, if God told you to do something, you know that something would need to be done and perhaps even something would need to change inside of you. Here's what's interesting. When we talk about the Bible, we're talking about a book or at least a collection of books that we are claiming are exactly that. Like God had shown up to speak to you and tell you how life should work and what it's like. That is how the Bible describes itself. And so when we look at this, we see that the Bible, in, at least as the psalmist is talking in one of the Psalms, he says, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. What he's saying is that, look, when you sum up all of what the Bible has to say, when you sum up all the word of God has to say, it's truth in the sense that it tells you how reality is. It tells you what to expect. It tells you how things are working. And that if you were to know how to live, his righteous rules endure forever. They're good for you in the first century. They're good for you in the BC time periods. They're good for you in every people group everywhere in the world for the last two millennia. There is no time period where these rules wouldn't have applied for human beings. In other words, we're saying that God spoke a standard. When God spoke, he didn't change it, doesn't shift with the culture, and doesn't change at all. In fact, God intends it for his people to be changed by it. Jesus, while standing there on the mount, well, actually walking with his disciples up to the garden in which he would find himself betrayed and then eventually he would be crucified on his last night of his life, he turns to his disciples and prays over them. And in his prayer, he prays that they would be changed. He says, so Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That word sanctify means set us apart, make us different, make us holy, make us usable by you. But that means we got to be changed. That means we got to be shaped. And so what we have is a situation which God has clearly said that, hey, I've given you some word, I've given you this truth, and it's going to change you. Now, does anybody begin to realize the impact that that should have on our lives? I mean, stop and just think about it for a minute. If this is really God's word, like he showed up in our room to tell us how to live, there's a lot of differences between my life and this, amen? I mean, I find it that way all the time. And yet it's easier for me to think, hey, and I think it's easier for the world to think this is a convenient fiction then, so I don't have to change. In fact, if you think of it this way, if this is, isn't changed, then I have to change. So either it changed and I don't have to change or it isn't changed and I'm going to have to change. Either this has changed and I don't have to even worry about it. This thing is untrustworthy. It's just a fiction. I don't have to, it, it, it is a gobbledygook of information from some long bygone era that doesn't matter for us anymore. Or it's something that we should be leaning on. It's a foundation for our lives. And that's the difference that I want to get into today because in this series, Static, I want to help show that this is a static book, that it's not been so changed that it's not at least, we, we can at least say that we have at least what the authors wrote, and that it's not changed so that we have to change. We have to be adjusted by it. And it's, so it's static, and it's coming to us without a lot of static. But 
In order to do that, there's really kind of two moves we have to make. First, I have to show you it's reliable. And then second, I have to show you that it's really God's word. It's one thing for it to be a reliable set of texts. It's another thing for it to actually be God speaking to us. And so today, we're going to tackle the first part of that. We're going to ask, is this text, is this thing that we call the Bible reliable? And the first move, and the first move we have to make in this is to realize one thing. This is not a book. You guys know that, right? This is not a book. You're like, yes, it is. You're holding a book. No, this is the original Kindle. It is a collection of books. In fact, it's a collection of scrolls that have been bound together into what we call the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures, the Old and the New Testament. And when you put them together in one binding, this is a collection of books that make up what we call the Bible. And so you need to remember that we're not looking at one book. We're looking at multiple books, 66 different books, 66 different scrolls, letters, all this kind of stuff that was written over 1,500 years by dozens of authors. You're thinking, that's a lot of time. In fact, this, the last of these was completed somewhere in 90 AD. And so when you begin to realize that this is a very old book, you got 2,000 almost years between us and the originals. And now we have a problem because it's right there that people begin to wonder, can I trust it then? I mean, 2,000 years, there's got to be a lot of changes. And you know what? And some of you have heard that there was this nefarious group of people who actually snuck in and began to actually rewrite the Bible. Those Christians started adjusting things so that it doesn't say what it originally said. You know, how many guys have heard that kind of an argument or been given that argument by a friend? A few of you. It's out there on the internet like crazy. And what I want to tell you guys is when we ask the question, is the text reliable? The answer is absolutely. Yes, it is. It's almost a slam dunk. When it comes to historical text, when it comes to arguing whether or not we have as good of a text as we would publish and you and I would read, we're in, we're in a good situation. We're looking for two things when it comes to this. We're looking for quantity, how many of these old texts do we have? And we're looking for quality, how good of these old texts do we have? And so that when we pile it together and we get a Bible, are we looking at only a couple references and they may be messed up and we don't know? Or do we have enough to say, hey, it looks pretty strong. It looks pretty good. Now, in the ancient, in all this historiography, as they call it, they, they dive in, they look at all these different manuscripts. The average old, the average old, you know, kind of classical age manuscript is roughly about this, 20 pages 20 documents for every single book. Like if it's Tacitus or Josephus or you name it, all these ancient people none of us even read or heard about anymore. You're, you're really looking at about 20 documents. But when it comes to the Old Testament and the New Testament, how are we doing in compared to the rest of the classical world? Well, when we dive in, first of all, I don't have enough to show you this, but the Hebrew text is about 10,000 documents. When you look and you pick up, back in the early 1900s, there was only 617 old Hebrew texts that we had written in Hebrew. And really the earliest one was 1000 AD. But after some little shepherd boy was throwing rocks up in caves back in the early 1900s, he wound up throwing a rock into a cave and they discovered this, what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of you have been able to go see the Dead Sea Scrolls? Anybody here? They were in, they were in San Diego a few years ago. And when they went up to the, when he goes up there, he finds a treasure trove of old documents sealed away in, in these jars. Well, as they've unearthed these and brought them out and preserved them and read them, there's roughly about 10,000 now Old Testament or Hebrew scripture manuscripts that they are calling through. And all of that gets included into the Old Testament. In fact, what they discovered was that 1000 AD text wasn't that much different from a lot of those old 
um, texts in that uh, of those 10,000. And so you see there was a strong preservation for the Hebrew scriptures. But what about the Christian scriptures? What about the New Testament, which was written in Greek? I mean, that's been the one that's changed, right? That's the one the church leans on, right? That's the one that, that, that can't be right anymore. It's been 2,000 years. A bunch of, you know, backwoods farmers wrote this stuff about Jesus and they made him into God or whatever you want to call it. Well, for us, verses 20, in fact, it's not what you think. Let me, let me show you. If you were to really deal with it, uh, you've got a guy named Homer. How many of you had to read the Iliad or the Odyssey in back, back in high school? They, I don't know if they do that anymore. I had to read, I think it was the, um, the Odyssey, and here you can read the Iliad. But with the Iliad, what's interesting, that's the king of the ancient world. That is 643 documents make up the Odyssey. That's how, cons- that's how much we're sure, sorry, the Iliad is definitely strong. 643 of these documents go into what you and I read today as the Iliad. That's amazing. So how does the New Testament stack up against that? Well, when you start to look at it, the New Testament stacks up now with 500, not 1,000, not 1,500. In fact, we'll just speed this up. Hopefully the table doesn't fall. 5,800 documents in Greek alone. If I was to include the Latin translations that date just as early as many of the Greek translations, I would have to add uh, another plus, I think it's 20 or more, 10,000 more. If you add the Syriac and all the other, um, the Coptic and all the other translations that are out there, I'd have to add 20, 000, there's 20,000 of those. I'd have to have 73 reams of paper Anybody can anybody see Homer over there anymore? It's like, you see the difference here? We don't doubt that we have the books from antiquity. We don't argue that we're misreading the Iliad. We're not worried about that. We have a great amount of books, but guys, 5,800 go into your Greek New Testament that is translated into the Bibles in your seats. This information is a treasure trove. One man who works at DTS called it um, just an abundance of embarrassment. It's so embarrassingly large. It's a riches and riches and riches of documents. What we can do with all this stuff is we get to work through all of these to see all the things. Because when you look at this large mass of, of mountain of text, you know what you find? Yeah, the text's been changed. Say, what? Yeah, their text has been changed. Here's what they don't tell you, though we pretty much know all the changes. And what we discover is the vast majority of the changes are just misspellings are oftentimes when a scribe is sitting under low candlelight and it's a little, can you imagine trying to copy in a dark room in a low candlelight setting and you're trying to, you have a manuscript here and a manuscript there and you're writing and you look over here to what you're writing, you look back and now your eyes skip down to the same word that was on a different line. That's one of the errors we find. Another one is where we accidentally recopy the same thing twice because he's tired and he didn't even realize it. There's places where things that were written in margins wind up being put inside. And so what you're seeing here is, yeah, there are changes, but none of them are significant and none of them deal with theology. They deal with misspellings or inclusions that they didn't want to eliminate. I'll give you one of those interesting inclusions Um, here right now. At the bottom of every Greek text, if you study Greek and you really, if you ever want to buy yourself a Greek text, you're going to run into the fact that it has an apparatus on the bottom. Now the apparatus looks like this, if I can, 
that apparatus, it shows you the changes in a text necessarily and then grades them according to how sure we are which one of the, uh, of the, different, arg- of the different endings or whatever, or the different words is likely the one that would be. And again, in this case, this is a bit more significant one for people. How many of you have ever prayed the Lord's Prayer, right? Yeah, everybody's got that one, right? Okay, how does it end? For thine is the and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's not the ending. You're like, what? Actually, there are four endings we find in this tre- treasure trove of texts, and they're found right up here. That word, see that number 13 with the A next to it? That word next to that is translated evil. And so it's the end of the text. Um, deliver us from, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. And that's that word. And the oldest manuscripts and a lot of the earliest authors who are, who are, who are quoting it actually just end there. They don't go on. The next closest attestation is the next one. Evil, amen. Just straight up, just we're going to say amen at the end of it and we're good because it's a prayer. Jesus needs to end every prayer with amen, right? But he doesn't. And the text just moves on. It appears we're, we're pretty confident about this. Now, the third one, which is found on the second page at the bottom, says, uh, deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, or just forever, Amen. And what he's adding there is that for that, that ending that we find. Now, what we know is this appears in a lectionary that shows up in a margin. And very likely what happened was a young scribe sitting in a room got to this point. Now, he had prayed this prayer. He probably had ended with that before because it was common in his monastery, this being one of the things that he was copying. But it was in the margin. Now, he can't talk to the, the scribe who wrote that and find out, hey, was this a mistake? Did you mean to, was this supposed to be in there and now it's not? Or, you know, is this actually the, the word of God? And so in order to not lose anything, he literally just put it in on, in order to not lose a thing. And so you end up with the Byzantine text type, which is a kind, which in, is all the texts that usually are winding up in your King James version of the Bible. And so this, this comes in there. There's a fourth one here, and it says, deliver us from evil. Uh, and, for, and it goes again. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory unto the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit forever. Amen. Aren't you glad you didn't get the fourth one? You have to, all of that to say, basic, look, there's, there are changes. We know of them. We talk about them. The people who translate your Bibles are very aware of them. Nobody's trying to hide the ball from you. When people try to tell you, oh, your Bible's been changed, you go, I don't know, but we know where they all are. In fact, we're reasonably confident we have the actual writings of the authors. We just debate over the words sometimes because we have a treasure trove of documents. Now, nobody doubts that we have it. Homer, why would we be doubting that we have the New Testament or the Old Testament as it was written. Now, another aspect to this is the, that helps us trust is the fact that you want a quantity, but there's also a quality. And quality is a matter of how close can you get to those original texts? How close can we get back to when, to when uh, you know, that original piece was? Now, the oldest fragment that we have, and it's a fragment, comes from 100 AD. And it's about this big by this, by this big. Just not a very big fragment, but it has the writings of the Gospel of John. I think it's 16 on one side and 18 on the other. And it is considered the oldest fragment of 
the New Testament. In fact, it's probably about only 10 years after the original gospel of John was written. And it's such a valuable specimen because it helps push the date of the New Testament back into that first century because it takes a while to get a copy. And so when you begin to realize that, hey, we've got some really old documents here, how does that stand up to the rest of the world? Well, my wife and I were watching a movie the other day. Um, It was called The Highwaymen. It's about uh, the two Texas Rangers who were hunting down Bonnie and Clyde. Pretty, pretty interesting movie. And as they're chasing these guys down, they had to stop at like gas stations and stuff after driving for a while, interview people. Hey, have you seen Bonnie and Clyde drive through and get, get the information of whether they didn't or didn't. And then they would move, did or didn't. And then they would move to another spot after they found out where they went, ask questions there, find evidence, move to the next spot. That's the same thing as we're chasing down the original document of the Bible or any original document. Imagine with me that every year that is between the original documents and the ones that we have here is a mile. When it comes to the Bible, when you start off, you would begin to journey on your way. And you would find that your first document is only um, about 10 miles away. It was written in 70 AD. So you'd still be here in Corona, right? Somewhere around in Corona, possibly looking for where their first stop was. Now, let's just say that fragment, that doesn't count. That's so small. Let's go for the whole New Testament for a second. Well, at that point, you'd have to drive for about 250 miles. You'd be just outside of Bishop. And if you like Bishop, it's a beautiful territory. You got Mount Whitney off in the distance, all that stuff. So you're sitting just outside of Bishop or just before you get to Bishop, about 250 miles. Before you got to that 250 miles, for every document that you found, you would have had to stop 100 times. 100 stops of doc- 100 documents between 250 and we can attest the entire New Testament by that point. And these are early documents. You say, well, how does that stand up to antiquity? Well, let's take somebody that all of us have had to read at some point in our lives. You ever heard of Aristotle? Anybody heard of Aristotle? Socrates? Morons. No, sorry, that's a quote from a different movie. But Aristotle is something that right now is being pushed as the ethics everybody should be reading. You need to read Aristotle's ethics. It's amazing. He's got everything that you need and all this stuff. But okay, how confident are we that we have Aristotle? Well, we have a bunch of documents of Aristotle for sure. We have 49 of them. But how far would you have to drive before you encountered the first of those documents compared to his original? Well, as you start driving, say you don't go up 395 because you you hope for a little bit different route, but you go up the five. Keep driving. You're going to get past uh, Bakersfield. You want to keep going. You're going to get past Sacramento. Keep driving. In fact, by the time you reach the northern border of California, switch drivers because you got to keep going. You're going to roll right into Portland and you're just going to say hi and keep driving. All the way up through Washington to Seattle, keep on going. You're going to enter into Canada. Once you're through Canada, you're going to drive all the way through Vancouver and go 75 miles outside of Vancouver before you found your first stop. 1,400 years between Aristotle's original writings and what we have. And yet we're confident that you're reading Aristotle. We are confident that you have something that represents Aristotle rightly. And so when you begin to realize the 250 miles versus 1,400 miles, 250 miles with 100 stops in between, you have the New Testament as it was written. You have what the authors intended. Sure, we debate over some of the differences here and there, but the bottom line is, they, we have those words and they don't ultimately change theology. In fact, just eliminate the pile for a minute. 
from all the quotations of the church fathers themselves within the first 350 years, you can rebuild the entire New Testament, I believe, save 11 verses. That is how much evidence rolls into your Bible. And for people to tell you you can't trust it, that, oh, it was changed, they just don't have the information. And so I want you to walk out of here today confident that what you have is actually the New Testament that the Christians have been reading. You say, well, what about the other books? I mean, you've heard about the Gospel of Peter, maybe the Gospel of Thomas or some, you know, the Gospel of Judas or something like that. Uh, why aren't those included? Maybe you've ran into the Apocrypha. When it comes to the Apocrypha, the church debates over that one. All right, as a Protestants, we don't include that. Uh, the Catholics will, and so will the Eastern Orthodox. The reason we don't is because we go with the Hebrew text versus the Greek. And the, when they came to the Hebrew texts, nobody in the Jewish society in, in the entire history out of the Hebrew text included the apocryphal writings. And so if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's a whole bunch of other books and stuff out there. I'm just set that aside for a minute. Most people are concerned about, well, what about all those weird books that I'm told should have been in the Bible and aren't? That some nefarious group of people sat down and said, they don't get to go in. Only these one go in because we like these one. Now, that's not how it worked either. First of all, I want you to imagine with me that you are 2,000 years later. We're in 4,019 and a bunch of intrepid archaeologists have been digging around out in the United States somewhere and they find some old hard drives. And they load up these old hard drives and they find this whole treasure trove of odd writings. In fact, they're writings about Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker and all this stuff in the background of the force. And they're like, they know about the Star Wars, you know, all of the all 90,000 movies that were made up by 4,000 BC, you know, AD, but they know all of the canon. This is the one that Disney said were good. This is the ones that George Lucas said are in. And they find all this fan fiction. They go, 4,000 years later, well, why weren't these included? These should be, these should be part of the storyline too. That's exactly how our scholars, 2,000 years later, are looking at these documents and going, well, these should have been included in the Bible too. When in actuality, these were known by the early church fathers. They identified these, these when they showed up and they said, this is a relatively new text. The gospel of Peter's new. This, this isn't included. We, we don't consider this. We don't use this as scripture in our worship services. It's not one of the four witnesses that we already include, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They would talk about these other documents. They knew when they were written and when they show up and they were fan fiction by a group of Gnostics or what was called Docetics, two different religious sects that were outside of the mainstream of the, of the church. And the Gnostics were their own complete religion, basically bringing Jesus in to say, hey, this guy works real well for us. Now, what I find fascinating is that what happens is we say, well, those books should be involved, but you have the right books. You see, for 300 years, the church actually wasn't able to gather together and say what, the, what they were using for scripture because of the persecutions that were keeping the churches apart. Finally, in 325, when they finally could come out, that's not the first thing they argued over. The first thing they had to deal with was the idea of how Jesus was God because they'd gone through lots of conversations of that over 300 years. What they actually had already settled on was what the books of the New Testament would be. Because early in the early 100s, there was a Martian that showed up and started arguing with, and it's, his name was Martian or Martian, not a Martian from Mars, but he, he decided to argue that I like only these books and I want an edited Luke because I don't like the Jewish God. And the Jewish God can be eliminated. We have the Jewish God and then we have the Christian God. Let's separate them. And the church went, no, 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 no. 
you're editing Luke, you're messing with Luke, you're messing with Paul, you're not going to do that. These are the books that we've used in the church. And, and in fact, they laid out 27 different books through all these different churches as they were talking about them. 22 of them were undisputed. Five of them were disputed because not all the churches were necessarily using them. Some of the West hadn't even heard of some of them that were in the East because that's how much things didn't cross over. They were careful to include them only after all the churches had gathered and began to talk about what they were using and go, yeah, they, and they would see them and they go, this makes sense. And then they approved the canon that they already had all been using. This was an organic process. It wasn't some fiat decree that we eliminate all these and include these others. And so in the same way that you have fan fiction is the same way other people wrote about it. In fact, let me give you one of those interesting ones from the Gospel of Thomas to show you just kind of why these things weren't included. Saying 114 of the Gospel of Thomas says this, Simon Peter said to them, let Miriam go out from among us for women are not worthy of the life. Jesus said, look, I will lead her that I may make her male in order that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself male will enter into the kingdom of heaven. How do you think that would float today? That is saying 117 of the gospel of Thomas. Now, again, what we want to see is that they saw this stuff and they said, that, that's not how we think. That, does, that doesn't fit. This isn't what we're looking at. Wait a minute, this is from another author. And so that is why you have books that aren't in your New Testament. It wasn't that they didn't know. So they just didn't, they knew about them and they knew that they were not early enough with the authors. Well, weren't the authors writing in 250, some people argue? No, 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 no. The, we have pretty good evidence that the authors were early. In fact, when you think about that little papyri piece that I talked about, that little one that, that talks about John. What's interesting is we know John had to be written earlier and we have quotations from around that same time period from a man named Clement. He was a pastor and he was writing all kinds of letters. And he quotes Paul and he quotes the gospels, which means they're even earlier. And so we can begin to place the author's writing. Typically, Paul wrote first and the gospels came second. So when did Paul write? Paul wrote, and, and I know this is getting a little technical, but Paul wrote in the, in the early 50s, the book of 1 Thessalonians and Galatians. Now just stop there. You're like, okay, so 50 years. No, Jesus was crucified, we'll say in 30 AD. That means it's only 20 years later. So again, if we were to go and try to find somebody who lived near enough to Corona to describe Corona for you and describe what Corona was like and who the people are like. And you needed to go somewhere and find somebody who was able to describe it. Just like you're looking for somebody who is near enough to the time period of Jesus that could talk about Jesus and talk about Jerusalem and talk about these locations. Think of every year as a mile again. If you were to simply get in your car and drive only 25 miles to your first gospel and to your first um, letter of Paul, you would wind up somewhere in Ontario. Do you think you could find somebody in Ontario, not Ontario, Canada, Ontario, Southern California? Do you think you could find somebody who has been to Corona enough times to describe it? Absolutely. You probably find somebody who used to live here. Probably find somebody has family here. Now, the now, what about other writings? What about other people? Have you ever heard of Alexander the Great? Just not up and down. It's an easy one. I think everybody's heard of Alexander the Great, right? The great Greek king, yeah, or, or Macedonian king. And 
Here's the funny thing. The only reason you and I know about Alexander the Great is primarily because he had a biographer. And this biographer wrote his life story out for us. And this is kind of where we get our basic map for the life of Alexander the Great. Now, if you were to get in your car and to drive to go find somebody who was close enough to Alexander the Great to know him and say Alexander the Great represents Corona, how far would you have to drive until you got to the biographer? You would be 456 miles away somewhere out in the middle of the Arizona desert. Now, do you think you'd find anybody out in the middle of the Arizona desert that really had, could describe corona to any degree? Maybe. But that's how much more attestation Jesus has than even Alexander the Great. And what you have is a people who were near, describing the reality of the situations. They knew details. They knew customs. They knew the people so well, they could describe it and draw it out. They were eyewitnesses of what was going on. Yeah, but they were biased, people like to say, because they don't want to be changed. They know if this is changed, then they don't have to. If they can find excuses, they don't have to listen to this, then they don't need to, and it has no authority in their life. But here's the thing. Everybody's biased. Even by you saying they were biased, that's a bias on your part. You can't deny the biases of everybody. Either somebody's telling you the truth or they're not. You see, and when you, if you actually read the Gospels, what you'll discover is these guys didn't really believe Jesus was the Christ at first. They kind of rolled through a process in which they were like, that's not what the Messiah does. Okay, well, yeah, we know you're the Messiah, but this is different. What are you doing? This is weird. And they had to come to the conclusion that Jesus was the kind of Messiah he was presenting and not what they had been taught as children of a military commander that the, even Orthodox Jews today are waiting for. And what you're seeing is that they went through a process of becoming believers. That's the opposite of the bias. They're trying to tell you what happened to them so that it can happen to you, not coming up with some invented religion to try to spread it around. There were plenty of invented religions at the time and nobody would really have gotten any traction, especially since they weren't out for power. These guys were killed. They definitely weren't out for sex. They taught celibacy was the number one virtue of the church for the first 300 years because they were celebrating a, a Jewish king who was celibate. And when you move forward, it definitely wasn't for money because they taught poverty. And so when you go there, what's the bias? What's the point? Except that they were expressing what they'd been told to from the one who they knew. And so you can trust that what you have is eyewitness reports. It's what they wrote down. It's what we have. They are accurate documents. In fact, when you look at it, the archaeology begins to show you that it is true history. Let me, let me dive quickly into this. I don't have time for all the archaeology that we could get into, and that would be really boring. But what I want to do is show you guys some quick ones from the Old Testament and then the New Testament. We'll start with this one. Uh, it ha starts in Genesis chapter 11, verse 31. A lot of people think Genesis is just kind of an invention of the 1500s uh, BC. Like 1500 years later, actually 500 BC, they're sitting there writing out in, uh, what supposedly happened in Israel, inventing their history. Well, here's the problem with the invention theory. It says that Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, and the son of Haran, his grandson Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and, and his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together. So the family leaves Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Why? In fact, they talk about that it was a good place and he got lots of trading and it was, it was, he was successful in the city. Here's the problem. Haran in this late 500 BC was a nowheresville. It was this little podunk town. The no, there was nothing going on there. But it was a very strong trade center 
in 2100 BC when, a, when Abram was walking around, from 2100 about 1900 BC, the time period that you put Abram. Go a couple hundred years further and it's nothing. Go have a couple hundred years before that and it's not a big deal. That in this time period is a big deal. Why would somebody choose that location 1500 years later for them to just stop at? When it was in Nowheresville and yet say, oh, they did all kinds of trading there. Many scholars have looked at this and go, well, then because it was a historical town and there are little facts like this sprinkled throughout the Old Testament that begin to indicate the historicity of what's going on here. Names of cities, places, and people. In fact, those patterns of evidence show up a lot, even for the Exodus. Now, I'm gonna, I don't have time for the Exodus information. If you wanna check that out, go on Netflix and watch Patterns of Evidence. Powerful little documentary that'll walk you through the evidence that begins to reveal this pattern of how, of how ex, the Exodus possibly could have happened. There are other versions of that same pattern in other time periods, but that I believe is one of the best attested patterns you can find. And so as you look at that, then it begins to continue forward in the conquest of Joshua. Now we all know this one, right? Joshua and the battle of Jericho. Sing with me now, Jericho. Oh, we're done with singing. Um, what we have here is the walls came tumbling down. And what we have is this in this verse. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, the, the sound, uh, they sounded a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him and they captured the city and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. What's interesting is the Hebrew indicates the wall fell outward. When we dig into the ground and we come to the oldest layer of, of Jericho, what we find is indeed it had a two-tier, very giant wall. And that wall had fallen outward. It had been pulled out and onto the ground, almost making a causeway. What's very interesting to me is not only that the wall fell outward, but notice what they did. They went up into the city. Well, if they weren't there, they wouldn't have known that there was an inclination where that wall had fallen and you had to climb up it to go into the actual city. That inclination is there because you go up into the city. You don't just go into the city. In fact, they burned it with fire is what it says. We find a burnover layer right at that same time period. In fact, it was such a quick destruction. We have now found large pots, um, large pots filled with grain that were never used because the fire and the destruction came so fast. It was an unexpected situation. And what you have here is all the evidence that seems to map directly on the conquest of Joshua. And so we go on. That's just a couple of them. There's lots more examples. In fact, I could bore you, but you just have to read an entire book like this. This is my seminary book for archaeology on the Old Testament. And there are a lot more other than this one that are out there. Guys, there is so much information on the Old Testament and the archaeology that involves it. We, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks and the church would shrink. So we would... Uh, Let's go to the New Testament then. Luke 23, 53, it says this. He took down and wrapped it in a linen shroud. What is this took down? He took the body of Jesus and wrapped in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Here's the interesting thing. Every Easter, you will hear people talking about, oh, the fact that people who were crucified in the first century were not put in tombs. They were, no, they were thrown in shallow graves where they were likely eaten by dogs. How many of you guys have heard this? This is common every Easter, you'll find it. It was propagated by a group called the Jesus Seminar, and this is what John Dominic Crossan had taught, and it's been kind of like a meme. Where everybody says, well, we all know that people were taken off crosses and thrown into shallow graves, and, and that's kind of been unfortunately refuted lately. Well, fortunately refuted when they dug into a bone box, went to a, a tomb, and the archaeologists pulled out a bone box, and this is what they found inside when they opened it up. If I can get it, come on. Oh my gosh. There we go. 
This is the ankle bone with an actual crucif of a crucified victim. The, they, couldn't get the, they couldn't get the nail out, and so it was left in when they buried him in a bone box. Before they did that, they would have laid the body of him on a sarcophagus wrapped in a linen shroud until the body had deteriorated, taken the bones up off of, that, off of that stone slab, and then put it in a box of which they would bury in a well inside the tomb. And so what you have here is the first evidence that, yes, they buried crucified victims. In fact, we find out very quickly in peacetime, that's all they did. It's in wartime you threw them in shallow graves because there was no time to bury people properly. And so what's going on is in a peacetime, like with Jesus, they actually would have given them the body and let them have their rights to bury them. In fact, what's interesting is another place that um, historians have been taught from the Bible and changed their mind was a place called Nazareth. We've all heard of Nazareth. In Mark chapter 1, we find out that that's where Jesus had come from. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. What's interesting about this is that Nazareth is not mentioned outside of the Bible ever until 400 years after the Bible is written. Prior to that, the Old Testament doesn't mention it. No, Josephus doesn't mention it. Nobody mentions it. So it sounds like a little bit of convenient fiction until archaeology blew up. And now when you go to the Holy Land, you can walk through Nazareth because they found it. It's an archaeological site in which they know the location. In fact, there are many scholars who believe that it was the space where Davidic, the Davidic kingly line escaped to during the revolts as the, as the independence rose in between the New Testament and the Old Testament because they didn't want to be eliminated. And Nazareth rose up as one of those towns. What's interesting about Nazareth is that there are some other things discovered there too that fit in with another interesting text found in Matthew chapter 28. After Jesus is risen from the dead, the, the guards run to the, uh, the Sanhedrin and they say, hey, he, here's what happened. And the Sanhedrin says, tell, the peop tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Now, a lot of people today like to point to this. We like to point to it and say, look, an empty tomb. Even the enemy says there was an empty tomb. A lot of people go, oh, this is a convenient fiction created to back up the, you know, to back up the argument that people were asking for. Oh, we'll prove it. Well, you guys stole the body. No, we didn't. That's what the Sanhedrin said. Oh, you just wrote that in your text to get people off your back. Well, here's the funny thing about this. In Nazareth, there's something called the Nazareth inscription that was found. It's on this stone that you're going to see right here. And as you read it, it is, a it is an official imperial decree, decreed by Caesar, one of the Caesars, I forget his name, but it was, they dated it to AD 41. AD 41, if Jesus was crucified in 30, that's only 11 years later. If he's crucified in 33, which is the other date, that's less than 10 years later. And here's what this odd inscription says. It says, by, royal by official imperial decree, you Nazarenes need to stop digging people's bodies up or, you're gonna be, or we're going to give you the capital punishment. It is a capital punishment order if you take and exhume bodies from graves. Now, here's the funny thing. Why is this in Nazareth? Why is it about Nazarenes? Except that was the name given to Christians in the first century. They were earlier, they weren't called Christians at this time, they were called Nazarenes. In fact, the, the rabbis in their writings that we have passed down called Christians Nazarenes. So you're a royal official, you go, well, it's happening in Nazareth. Well, we're gonna tell them to stop digging up bodies then. If these people are stealing bodies, well, stop doing it. 
It attests to the fact that there was in some way, some information passed up that some kind of Nazarenes were digging up bodies. Now, Jewish people don't dig up bodies. It makes you ritually unclean. You, it, it's actually considered a travesty and, and defiles things. So it's very interesting that this would show up in Nazareth. And it backs up the thinking that perhaps maybe that news did wind up going to the royal officials. Lastly, and again, this is a piece of many, many pieces. There's this idea of these devout Greeks down at the bottom, these Greek leaders in this city that they were in, along with the leading women, they were called polytarchs. Now, what's funny about polytarchs in the 1800s, they used to argue, this is ridiculous. Luke made this up. You guys don't know that your Bible is a fiction until they found this at the bottom of a pillar or bottom of an arch. And it, the first word on this found in 1867 is polytarchs, and then it lists all the polytarchs of the city that existed in that town, confirming that Luke knew exactly what he was talking about. In fact, there have been finds that date Paul to the exact city at the exact time of AD 51 because that leader has been found and he only ruled that year. The details in the New Testament are exquisite and they fit the timeline. In the Old Testament, they fit the ancient timeline so that you and I can trust these are eyewitnesses. They're speaking from the time period. They're early enough. It's not been changed. What you and I have is a full ability to be confident in the word of God. Now, you may be curious about more information on this kind of stuff when you have a treasure trove of information like this, and I haven't even gotten into it because, again, I could show you archaeology book after archaeology book and all kinds of information, but the bottom line is you have plenty of reason to trust that what you have is an accurate document in the New Testament, an accurate collection of the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures. And so if these haven't been changed, the challenge comes to us Maybe we should be the ones changing and not that. But I've argued that it's uh, reliable. But how do you make it the word of God? Are you guys ready? Well, you're going to have to wait till next week. Because <laughs> that's what we'll cover next week. In the meantime, I want to encourage you, if you, maybe you'd like to go through a little bit more of these kind of conversations, we have a group called Starting Point. It gives you that opportunity as well. And so I want to encourage you, hey, if you're curious about Starting Point, head on out. There's our, our discipleship pathway up there. You'll find out that you can text to that number, starting and, or sign up on the app. We'd love to get you connected in these kind of conversations. There's lots of cool things like this. So let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's, um, let's just thank our God together. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for just all the opportunities that you have given to us to understand that your word is absolutely true. It is something that we can trust completely. Would you please just continue to shape and develop our minds and our lives that we would walk in you? We know, God, there are a lot of people out there that doubt the book. There are a lot of people out there that are really thinking that, hey, we don't have to do this. We don't have to change but you've called us to that change and you've called us to those developments. We pray that now we would begin to realize that we'd re-engage with our Bibles like we never have before so that we might begin to really walk in a way that we can be confident in you. And we thank you for this chance we have just to explore this information. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.